Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. One of the issues that needs to be explored is the role of public health policy insofar as climate change issues are concerned. David Pollack is a psychiatrist at the University of Oregon, and he has done considerable work in this area over the years. Dr. Pollack, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The climate change realities are increasingly impacting our lives. We need to know from a larger perspective what is happening from a policy perspective in the government, in schools, and other organizations to help us understand the problem and address the problem. It's a big question, but maybe it's a, it's, it's a place to start. Where I would start is from an understanding of what are some of the health impacts, the climate and health interactions that would lead us to thinking about what are the policy initiatives that need to be addressed. I won't go into all the other organ systems. Similar to them, there are significant mental health impacts of climate change. There's some direct impact on people who have pre-existing psychiatric illness, and there are conditions that develop as a result of climate-related factors. Without boring everyone with the causes of global warming and what are some of the climate drivers that lead to health consequences, I'll assume that you've covered that. In- we have, and, and I agree with you. Let's talk Talk about the policy issues, right. not, not the etiology. The mental health impacts to start with are ones that include the impact of extreme heat, air pollution, the traumatic and acute injuries that are associated with extreme weather events. And then there's this more nebulous but pervasive concern about what is variably called eco-anxiety or psychotouratic syndromes or solastalgia. Basically, it's a combination of anxiety and trauma symptoms that people experience either in acute settings in the wake of some kind of extreme weather event, whether it's wildfires or hurricanes or extreme rain or other things, or even in the anticipation of those. Then there's the longer-term anxiety that many people are now experiencing that come from a greater awareness of the trends in climate situation and that global warming is a reality and that if we don't make some changes, things will only get worse, that they're getting worse in some cases in an exponential way, and that we have a lot to be concerned about in relation to the lack of adequate response in terms of meaningful policies and changes in lifestyle and so forth. The heat effects in particular are impact that relate both to the persons who have more severe psychiatric illness, schizophrenic disorders, bipolar disorder, and mental health conditions who may be less mindful of taking care of themselves in various ways in the event of extreme heat. On top of that, most of the medications that people who have psychiatric conditions are taking have side effects that interfere with their body's thermoregulation capacity so that they're more likely to tip into a heat stroke or hyperthermia. There's a lot of data to show that increased heat in general will lead to increased interpersonal violence, whether it's individual on individual violence or group on group violence. Data shows that there is a significant increase in the risk of suicide during heat events. It's enough of an increase to equal the kind of effect that suicide prevention would have in deterring suicide, so it's a pretty significant effect. When it comes to air pollution, there's kind of symbiotic relationship between respiratory problems like asthma, shortness of breath that people might have because of air pollution, and anxiety states. By symbiotic, I mean you can get more anxious as you get trouble breathing, and when you have anxiety, it interferes with your breathing, so they kind of work on each other. The anxiety things are much 
more diverse in terms of who they affect and how they affect them. But when you think of conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, that might be something that people would see in people experiencing hurricanes, like in your area of the country, or wildfires in my area of the country. Communities are disrupted. They, their lives are turned upside down. That clearly is an understandable cause of anxiety. Then there's the more insidious anxiety that people are now showing up in therapist's offices saying that they're feeling more anxious because of how much change and how rapid the changes are in their environment and the geophysical environment. But these days, you think about the political environment as well. There's a term called solastalgia that was coined some 35 years ago by an Australian. It is, in effect, the equivalent of anxiety and trauma symptoms that people experience from these kinds of changes in their environment. And we see some areas of the world where Native peoples are being deeply affected by the changes in the land and the sea. A colleague of mine in eastern Canada, Ashley Consolo, has been reporting on the concept that she's called ecological grief, where people who depend on the land whether it's sea ice or lands for fishing or hunting, as well as where they grow their crops, are experiencing such changes that they can't sustain the way of life they've been used to. And a number of them have experienced depressive disorders and discouragement and demoralization describes as this term ecological grief. In your experience, do you think that the public health policy makers are aware of this enough? That's proverbial yes and no kind of questions. A lot of people who are aware, there's a growing number of people who are aware. More public policy and public health people focused on how do we prepare the community for the impacts of climate change. Mostly it's been climate and health resilience plans have been developing either in the state or at the community level that are looking at how do we harden our infrastructure? How do we prepare people to be aware of the risk of certain kinds of events? What's not happening as much is preparing the communities psychologically to be dealing with these issues, to be able to be mindful and able to be supportive of one another as these events occur, that they're going to occur, and in a sense have kind of a mindset to be prepared for the long haul, that this is our future, and that in a sense we all have to budget a piece of our time to be working on some aspect of this. Not necessarily all working to prevent climate change, but working to be part of our communities to help support one another, both in relation to acute events, but also in terms of some of the longer range factors that will be impacting us. One of the things that has come to me from patients, actually, and interestingly, is that there has been over the last couple years a rather frequent change in the federal government's attitudes towards environmental protection activities. This is a public health issue in many ways, and it's percolating down to people who are worried. It indeed is. And let me take that and say there are people who are aware, but they haven't had either the right method of communicating about this or the right data to show people. What's happened in the last two or three years, there have been centers like at Yale and George Mason University where they have centers for climate communication, and they've been doing regular polling on public's attitudes, and there's been a fairly dramatic shift just in the last two years in terms of significant increase in the number of people who both say, I am aware of and believe it is real that climate is changing, and 
they are worried. They're either somewhat or very worried, a very high percentage. With that change occurring and with the other things that those two groups have demonstrated more broadly, which is that when you talk about the health impact, whether it's the mental health impacts, the respiratory health impacts, the dermatological impacts or whatever, global warming and other climate-related impacts, those climate and health connections are among the most robust arguments to get people off the denial dime and to get them to be more thinking about and doing things in relation to this, whether it's personal actions like actually driving less, using less air travel, figuring out ways to use less carbon fuels in their lives, moving away from excessive meat consumption and so forth, but also to be active in their local community or in relation to lobbying or congressional representatives to do something. The other thing that's really important is all of the issues that people are concerned about are interconnected. Think in terms of income inequality, racism and cultural exclusion and social exclusion, gun violence, etc. These things all are somewhat connected, partly because the climate change impacts are not equal in terms of how they affect people necessarily. People of color and in lower socioeconomic groups are the first to be affected. Look at what's happened in some of the extreme weather events, whether it's Katrina or Hurricane Maria or the Dorian that just hit the Bahamas or the wildfires that happened here in the West Coast. First and worst is what we're talking about. From a progressive perspective, a lot of people who are saying, well, climate change is important, but we've got to work on Black Lives Matter or income inequality. The reality is these things are all interconnected. If we're not working on them or if we think inappropriately that we have to address these issues first, climate change will come later. We're going to be in a world of hurt. And that's a really important point to make. Really interesting to see, for example, the Green New Deal proposal that's been put forth in Congress. It's a comprehensive concept that says, A, we have to do what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is saying, which is we have to do everything we can to become carbon neutral, not just we, the United States, and all the other nations. We have to do this by 2050. And to do it by 2050, we have to be acting now. That's a big thrust of it. But at the same time, it's saying we have to do other things, including pass something that's the equivalent of Medicare for all, figuring out a way to provide health insurance for everyone, the changes in our economy, which will allow us to have healthier and more productive and more carbon neutral jobs, that many of which will be involved in the alternative energy production industry and building trade that will use less carbon in the process. But it also includes a lot of other things that people would think are somewhat extraneous, figuring out ways to provide better education to the public. There's a whole panoply of ideas in the Green New Deal that are saying these are a reflection of how a lot of these issues are interconnected. So if you improve the economy by making it more egalitarian, and if you focus on keeping the carbon in the ground and figuring out other ways how to provide energy and to reduce the demand for energy, if at all possible, we will have a chance of arriving there. Has this percolated down to the schools, to the curriculums that kids are being taught? and hopefully being taught in a manner that's just not frightening them, but giving them a sense of empowerment uh, from what you've observed. 
I don't know, it's not my area, but I know that it's happening in a lot of schools and that you cannot prevent children from getting exposed to some of this information. Ergo, the enormous youth movement that has come up in the last few years, in just a couple weeks, there's going to be big climate strikes all over the world led by youth because people who are under 30 and certainly people who are under 20 are the ones who are going to be most heavily affected by the long-term impacts. And they're, and they're scared, and they have a right to be, because generations before them have, in effect, betrayed them. They're learning about it in one way or another through social media, if not through schools. Now, if you want to talk about curricula, what I'm most focused on these days is curriculum for health professionals to make sure they understand what the climate and health connections are and to be prepared as health providers, all disciplines, not just physicians, but nurses and other health professionals, to be aware of and ready to address the kinds of health problems that come up. I'll back up for a second in terms of what I think the agenda is for health professionals vis-a-vis the climate issue. The best way to do it is by using an acronym CARE, C-A-R-E. So the C would be clinical. What are the clinical conditions? I've described to you what some of the clinical conditions are in regard to mental health concerns, but there are similarly clinical conditions in regard to many other health disciplines and organ systems. There's a great interactive tool that the New England Journal just published within the last few weeks that gives someone an excellent overview of all the key issues around climate and health. And it's easy to go through. It takes about an hour at the most. And it has links to a number of articles from the New England Journal and others. In the 45 minutes to an hour, you can get this great overview, a broad range of climate and health concerns, including health systems and health policy, as well as the individual clinical concerns. C is clinical. The first A is administrative. By that, I mean we as health systems, health clinics, health practices, individual offices, etc., we represent a disproportionately large use of carbon compared to our sector percentage of the economy. There are a lot of things that can be done to reduce the waste, to reduce the excessive energy use in health systems, and they're being done. There's some great groups at the individual level. I'm sure you're aware of your colleague, Todd Sachs, who's doing My Green Doctor, which is aimed at individual practices. There are groups at the larger system level, including Healthcare Without Harm and Green Health or something like that. Our medical school has a lot of work that they're doing to do things such as reducing the waste in ORs and ERs using reusable equipment that is not made with fossil fuel-based plastics. Our university is considering developing a revolving fund for funding little projects in various parts of the university, a revolving green fund, they're calling it, and a number of places have been developing those. In any case, to reduce the use of carbon and to increase the awareness of all the employees in the system so that they're on board with these efforts. That's an example of the administrative side of things. The second A is advocacy. One of the main advocacy things that we should be doing, as you may know, because Todd was also involved in this, the AMA, the American Psychiatric Association, several other groups have already moved to try to divest from fossil fuels. A number of these organizations, whether they're healthcare professional organizations or academic organizations, have large portfolios. The movement to divest from fossil fuels has become a lightning rod for a lot of folks in that it is clearly a public health intervention, a way to keep the carbon in the ground and a way for those organizations to back what they believe in, putting pressure on the fossil fuel industry by reducing the investment that they have. 
that's an example of advocacy. But there's a lot of other things that people can advocate for, including some of these public health interventions, climate and health resilience plans at the local level or the state level, and to include in those the notion of preparing people psychologically for this kind of future. One example of that, there's an international group that focused on something called transformational resilience, which is, in effect, taking that concept of we need to prepare people psychologically. How do we train them? We had a bill in our state's legislature this last session that unfortunately didn't pass yet that would have done a pilot project to determine how and whether we could provide to get training in some of the psychological skills to be better prepared for both acute disasters as well as the long-term effects and living with climate change as it progresses. So those are examples of advocacy. And this transformational resilience is a concept that people could look up on our website, the Climate Psychiatry Alliance website. We have a nice brief about it. The R in care is research, that we need to do more research on what are some of the health impacts and how can we best address them. And the final letter, E, is education. And that really is a key component of what we need to be doing. Developing curricula for all health professionals, the entire healthcare workforce needs to be aware of and prepared to address these health impacts. There's a global consortium on climate and health education that's based at Columbia University in New York and has representatives who are working with it and have a number of resources that they have on their website of different types of curriculum content, a number of universities that are working now on improving their curricula. Basically, how do we get, for example, in the undergraduate medical curriculum, in the residency training, in nursing school training, and so forth, at least some introductory information and then for other people to go more deeply into in relation to their specialty area or just to understand more broadly what some of these health effects are. One really good vehicle for doing this would be this New England Journal module that I mentioned. I'm on the Sustainability Steering Committee at Oregon Health and Science University, and we're working feverishly right now to develop curriculum ideas and to incorporate them into the various schools at the university. And we're looking at this module as a good first step to get some people aware of this. One of the issues is you also have to develop faculty to provide this, and a lot of schools are finding themselves high on ideas but short on enough faculty who are skilled enough to do the training. At least it is happening, and that is just comforting. People often say, is it too late? Well, it doesn't matter where we are in the time course. We have to start doing something. Well, true. But, you know, I can I, I know it's challenging to not get into too much of a down mode, but I need to share with you concerns that a lot of us have who've been doing a lot of work on this for a while, and that is that we're not moving fast enough, and the trends in terms of the way climate is changing are such that it doesn't look like we're going to make it. And there's a lot of folks who are doing a focus on, well, some people call it deep adaptation, saying, you know, there's a good likelihood that civilization and societies may collapse. There's even an article in this week's New Yorker by Jonathan Franzen that's in effect addressing this and saying, what do we do? People are saying, if we stop denying the probability of societal collapse and a real major catastrophic impact on this whole world, maybe we can think of how we can develop sufficient changes to our economies and to the way we do things to adapt to what those changes will be. And I don't want to be too cataclysmic in terms of what I'm saying, but the more you think about it, the more you wrap your mind around this, 
the more inescapable some of these conclusions are. We talk to climate scientists and who talk to others and other what we call climate first responders, which are both scientists who are doing the work to say here's what's really happening, as well as the adaptation professionals who are working in the public arena, whether it's in the transportation infrastructure or the public health infrastructure, whatever, who get it, as well as the climate activists who also get it. And they're stressed said in the documentary that's coming out in the next few months called Once You Know, that once you know all of this, you can't unthink it. You can't deny so easily the trends that we're seeing. And you, as a climate first responder, are extremely frustrated with the lack of response from the public in many ways and the lack of adequate response by government. And that caused some of these folks to feel burned out. You know, this like the burnout phenomenon that we're seeing in healthcare. We're seeing it now in these climate first responders. They need help. They need help to both have people see that their concerns are not irrational, but that they, in a sense, are a clue that we all need to be acting more assertively and more effectively. Dr. Pollack is a now-retired, congratulations, a physician at the University of Oregon, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Abby. I just want to say I don't want to leave people on a, such a bummer note. I remain hopeful, just I want to be realistic. That's the best way to end because that's what I want to be. Yeah. I'm still hopeful. I get scared. I get worried, but I've not lost hope. Yeah. Not lost hope. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And I appreciate your spending time, sir, and thank you very much. Okay. Take care.